0: brought to you by penguin I mean I, I don't find life easy I'll be honest but the notion of going to a therapist and having the whatever the problem is taken away if the problem goes so does the writing.
1: Hello thanks for dropping into the award-winning penguin podcast Gold. Best branded content at the British Podcast Awards, since you're asking. This is the place where we explore how our brilliant writers and artists tap into their creativity by way of a series of objects that they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthur Nyker, speaking to you from my house. So if you hear my kids thudding away on the ceiling above me or our 17 week old Staffordshire Bull Terrier puppy chewing at my feet, It's because real life is happening while we talk. Now, my guest today has sold over 21 million copies of his Alex Ryder Young Adult books, which have recently been made into a series on Amazon Prime. He's also written two James Bond novels, two Sherlock Holmes books, screenplays and novels for adults, including his latest. It's called Moonflower Murders in which we meet retired publisher Susan Ryland, who is running a small hotel on a Greek island and is visited by a couple who tell the story of a murder that took place in their hotel on the day their daughter, Cicely, was married. Cicely recently read a book which was based on that murder and then promptly disappeared. Our protagonist, Susan, published the book in question and is asked to return to England to help find their daughter. Well, we've got to get more into this and how it came about with none other than... Anthony Horowitz. Hello, Anthony.
0: Hello, Nihon. Can I just say how brilliantly you introduced my book? When I'm asked to describe the plot of it, I turn myself in knots uh, <laughs> trying to explain what's happening. But you just did it. I, I, I should have to listen to this podcast and, and, and steal your words.
1: Well, I, I have to say that I won't take credit for that. Someone else wrote that introduction <laughs> for me, and I, I wouldn't take anyone else's accolade away from them. Uh, but uh, yes, thank you. I'm glad we managed to summarize that properly. It's brilliantly complex. So I feel a little bit guilty sometimes when you take something that's been written so multi layered and then just kind of condense it into a into a few sentences like that. Do we do it justice at all, really?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think one should differentiate between the complexity of the writing and the sort of amount of work that it took to put it all together... This is, after all, a novel in a novel, two different timeframes, two completely different sets of characters, and at least two, maybe three or even four murders. Uh, So it's a complicated construction. But if it it can't be described easily, and if you can't read it without having to scratch your head every three pages, something has gone very wrong. The idea is for it to be simple at the end of the day as an entertainment.
1: How difficult is it to get that balance, Anthony, between having that multi-layered approach because you're so good at what you do, but not alienating the reader?
0: I think it's because I was never myself a very strong reader when I was young, and I I used to get lost. I mean, I've never been able to read War and Peace simply because I get fed up with a number of characters and I can never remember who they all are. So when I'm writing a book like this one, I'm on the side of simplicity. I'm on the side of easy exposition and not having to thumb through the pages to work out who each character is and how they're connected to the plot. Um, For me... As a, as a former and current children's author writing for young people and also writing these murder mysteries for an adult audience, simplicity is the key. Um, and yet at the same time, I do love the hours and hours that I spend on my own here in Clark well, in my office concocting it and putting it together. I, I think the analogy is of a, is of a, of a watch. I like the, the mechanism of the book to be as complicated as a watch, but a watch at the end of the day, everybody can tell the time. So that's what I'm trying to achieve.
1: What is the the challenge of having a book within a book?
0: There was a peculiar challenge in this one, which is quite difficult to describe, but it was this. The, the premise of the book is that a murder has been committed in the 21st century, the solution to which can be found in a novel set in 1955 and written some years after the murder had taken place. And the idea is that the author, Alan Conway, visited the, the murder scene and concealed the solution somehow inside his book. And the, the the biggest challenge I faced was what did Alan Conway write? Because I couldn't write the same murder twice. I couldn't set... Both books in the same hotel with the same cast of characters uh, and therefore the the murderer in Alan Conway's book is the murderer in real life. That's too easy and too boring. So the biggest challenge was to come up with two completely different books that were nonetheless connected to each other in all sorts of different ways, some of them very surprising ones.
1: Is the battle to constantly try and outfox yourself? I mean, are you someone who would naturally your greater instinct is to is to perhaps do something that's easy but you always push back at that or are you always striving to be as as difficult to yourself as you possibly can
0: that's a very interesting question I mean am I, am I in some kind of war with myself yes is what you're asking here I think I am always trying to push myself and to and to create things that have never been done before, to come up with clues that have never been done, ideas, motives for murders. I've read an awful lot of murder mystery. I've read an awful lot of books. And I think that the golden standard for me is always to find the thing that hasn't yet been done. It's one of the reasons, incidentally, why I don't read a lot of uh, murder mysteries, because if if, if I read something and I see a great clue in it, a great idea... I'm immediately annoyed that somebody else has thought of it before I could.
1: <laughs> well, that was kind of, was going to be a follow on question because I've spoke to so many music artists over the years and when they're sitting down to write albums, you know, in the months leading up to that, some of them don't listen to artists within their genre because they don't wish to be influenced in any way by it. And I guess you've said similar thing in the sense that you don't wish to revel in the world of, 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 of murder mystery.
0: Moonflower Murders is the work of at least 15 months, maybe even uh, uh, two years by the time it was actually you know, off to the publisher. So therefore, it's a bit of a busman's holiday to then spend my free time in somebody else's murder mystery. And there are a lot of books in the world to read that aren't murder mysteries, so in a way, I prefer to, to avoid the arena. But as I say, the second time is that I don't want to be... Persuaded or reminded how many brilliant writers are out there having ideas that I wished I'd had. And also, funnily enough, I'm not very good at solving other people's murder mysteries. I get quite frustrated when I read a good murder mystery, but I can't actually work it out for myself. I think to myself, come on, you're selling all these books, you are getting known as a murder mystery writer. Surely to goodness you should be able to solve this book, and you didn't. What the hell is wrong with you? So for those reasons, I don't actually read. I mean, I do read a certain amount because I have to keep current, and I'm often being asked in interviews my opinion opinions and recommendations, etc., And there are books that I absolutely love in that world. Um, But but by and large, I tend to stick to anything but when I'm reading for pleasure.
1: Let's get on to your first object, uh, Anthony, which is a magic trick of all things.
0: I collect magic tricks and puzzle boxes and illusions. And actually, this is a a conversation about writing and they relate 100% to the writing of murder mysteries, that sleight of hand, secrets, uh, surprises, uh, a final magical effect, which could be the reveal of who did the killing, is so much part of my work. And... I've always, since I was a boy, loved magic. And I love the sort of, the mindset that uses quite simple principles to fantastic effect. So David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear. He's using a Victorian effect to do a trick that seems technologically futuristic. And in fact, one of my novels, Moriarty, which is the, um second Sherlock Holmes novel I wrote, is based entirely on a very, very simple and even quite childish magic trick which I learned in my teens. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pick-a-card trick, but I applied the principles of that trick to the novel Moriarty. And and that's, that's what it is, a trick.
1: I found something really fascinating, you know, reading up about you and saying you probably wouldn't go and have therapy because you suspect that one of the drivers is is perhaps the the negative energy you had to deal with when you were a child
0: i 've always believed that creativity comes from tension. There is something inside uh, an artist a writer a, a dancer a whatever that Will not rest, there is a sort of an endless spark, two naked wires that are flicking against each other, and every time they do it, there's another spark and that might be anger, it might be energy, it might be love, it could be anything. but nonetheless, without that tension going on inside you, there is no creativity that's my feeling anyway. and you know I have had it suggested to me that therapy might be a good idea. I have my highs and my lows and and, and I've always been difficult i mean I, I don't find life easy I'll be honest. But the notion of going to a therapist and having the, whatever the problem is taken away, if the problem goes, so does the writing. And and that's unthinkable. You know, drugs to, to, to stop you being depressed are on the market. I'd never take them because I'm too aware of, of what is going on and what is making these books go. You know, I'll get to the end of my life with a body of work. And that's what matters, not the life, the work. And and nothing nothing should, should should get in the way of that.
1: But away from the work, then what do you need to keep you sane enough to do the work? Because you can't lose yourself entirely in the work and you can't be defined a hundred percent just by that one thing.
0: I think I'm probably defined about ninety percent by that one thing. I mean if you right. take away my writing and my you know, look, I don't want to overclaim here. Like Everybody, like you, like like anyone listening to this, I, I I have relationships. I'm I'm married. I have a wonderful wife. I have wonderful sons. I am very fortunate that, that my books are brought in enough money to have a nice place to live. I go to the theatre and the cinema. I walk the dog. I go to Suffolk, and, and I love that. I travel a certain amount. Don't let me try and and sell the idea of the <laughs> sort of you know the, the the manic writer sitting in his you know attic all day long, uh, just just producing books. But that said, from my perspective, if you took away the books, the TV, and the the other stuff that I write, I don't think I've got anything particularly to offer the world. I mean, you know, that that is what I do, and it's it's what I love doing, and, and what has had a certain degree of success, and outside that,
1: not much. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting you say that. I, I once interviewed the rapper Dave. I don't know if you've come across him I love words. Dave. I, Dave yeah. is great. I interviewed him and he said, without music, I don't exist, which I thought was a profound thing to say.
0: Well, Just, I think I totally agree. And I'm so happy that you bring him into the conversation because it was only recently that I saw his, his rap about, um, sort of black, it was played in relation to Black Lives Matter. Yes, right, and yeah. I, I watched that and I'm not even a huge aficionado of rap music, but I was... I I felt almost tearful. It was so moving and so powerful. And he himself seemed so committed to the song. that for you to then bring him up in this conversation and to tell me what you've just done, it's it's sort of something I completely understand and get.
1: Another artist once told me, life begins at the edge of my comfort zone, which I've also always liked.
0: I think the comfort zone is my fear. It's like Alex Rider. You know, I could have written by now 25 Alex Rider novels. I mean, I have done 13 of them. So it's not exactly a small body of work, but but I could set, settle back and do an Alex Rider book every year and sort of have a formula and it works and everybody likes it. But to me, that is anathema. That is exactly the reason you don't become a writer, which is to sort of play safe. Again, you know, when my publishers asked me to do a um, series of murder mystery novels because they wanted a series, because series is for publishers, Publishers help, and, 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 you know, they're much more easy to sell to the market because, you know, people don't look for the next author book. They look for the next character book. The only way I could agree to do it, and I'm now talking about the Hawthorne series, in which there have been two and which I think there'll be eight more, was to was to do something completely different and to turn the whole who done it thing on its head, put myself in as a character and play with the genre and, and take risks because, because that was the more exciting thing to do. I mean, what is the point of writing if you're not challenging yourself?
1: Mm, absolutely. Let's go to your next object, which is a Dickens novel.
0: First of all, he is a great writer. Secondly, I have a beautiful edition, and this is the reason I chose it for this conversation. Is is it's not just Dickens. Everybody knows Dickens. Everybody loves Dickens. But I have a 1946 none none such edition, which is the most beautiful edition of Dickens I have seen. I bought it in a, a second hand bookshop years and years ago, and it has at the back of it one of the original plates, uh, the silver plate used for the first edition of Dickens. So it is a quite unique thing because. I am the only owner of that plate. There are only, I think, 900 and something copies of this set ever made. It's beautifully done. And what I love about it also is that whoever owned it before I bought it never read it. And when I read it, which I do, I'm afraid to say with cotton gloves, because it is quite a sort of a valuable edition, sometimes when I turn a page, the top of the page slightly has a, has a, has a tearing sound as it separates itself from the next page because it has never been opened before. And I get such a thrill out of that. And to an extent, Moonflower Murders and Magpie Murders are books about books, about writing, about the the physicality of a book. And I happen to love editions of books. I love illustrations, binding, uh, typography, um, paper stock, um, all of it. The whole idea of a book is not just the contents. It is in itself an object of beauty. So that is why I chose Dickens. Not just Dickens, but the 1946, none such edition of Dickens.
1: Why do you return again and again to Dickens?
0: Because, like all great literature, it tells you where you are in your life. When you start reading Dickens and you're young, and I remember it, your eye was carried away by the plots, by the twists, the turns, and the jokes and the characters. I didn't notice that the women were not actually that full-bodied. So sometime later in my life, when I started reading my 30s and 40s, I began to question Dickens' attitude to women, and therefore my attitude to women and and to, to, to what it said about me. And then in later life, I began to see things in the Dickens books Like, for example, to my mind, he becomes quite tired. By the time you're getting to Our Mutual Friend and and some of the later Dickens novels, there is, to my thinking, and and I may be completely wrong, a sense of exhaustion, but he is struggling to achieve the same effects that he managed when he was young. It's, in a way, by reading Dickens, I'm learning more about Dickens, but at the same time, more about myself.
1: What do you think Charles Dickens would make of today?
0: I would like to write a book set here in Farringdon, maybe even with the word Farringdon, that's where I live, Clerkenwell, in the title, something Clerkenwell, Clerkenwell Bob, Clerkenwell this, I don't know, to write a Dickensian novel that answers your question in the style of Dickens, in the mindset of Dickens, to tackle 21st century London in a Dickens novel of around 700 or 800 pages, using all the people in this area. And what fascinates me is is that where I live, where I'm talking to you from, is in the middle of Dickens land. I have Bleeding Heart Yard just five minutes away. You may remember that Miss Finch, the lady with the birds, lives in Bleeding Heart Yard in Bleak House. Fagin didn't live too far away from here. Jarndyce and Jarndyce is quite near here as well. Dickens himself had a house just up the road. So, of course, this area is very much his part of the world. And there are still parts of this area, the cobbled streets, gas lamps, that would have been familiar to him. There were also certainly, a lot of tenements here when he was uh, alive. And, it, and, of course, it would have been very different too. Actually, it is an idea that I want to write about and which I might, if I'm spared, do in probably about seven or eight years' time.
1: Just the thought of you writing that you was making the hairs on the back of my neck stand. Oh, it's nice of you to say
0: so, but of course the trick is not to write it in too much of a Dickens pastiche style. Yes, because I course. don't think a twenty-first century audience would go for that.
1: Plus, of course, the East End of now. The the sheer multiculturalism of it means that you could have some real fun with the names of people and characters, couldn't you? Well, actually, you say that, but
0: actually, you've already sort of pointed out one of the pitfalls. And if I have a lot of fun, as you put it, with a multicultural character, you know, am I heading for a spreading, as it were? Um, Um, You know, the modern sensitivities about all that make that quite quite challenging.
1: Has that consciously encumbered at all your your writing, the thought of the increasingly offended sections of our different communities?
0: Not my writing, no. I don't think it is the job of the writer to be even remotely concerned about offending people, upsetting people. And the moment you start kowtowing to the sort of the general view of things... um you are lost, you must listen to your own voice. That said, there is an important proviso on that, which is the, that it is not the job of the writer to offend either. To willfully wade in and upset people is, is, is self-defeating. And at the end of the day, my novels are not deep, serious tracts about modern life. They are entertainments. And therefore, why would I wish to upset and annoy a section of my audience by being willfully, you know, politically incorrect or, or, or whatever?
1: Uh, I, as someone of colour, my parents are from Sri Lanka. I've wrestled a lot for the last four years about my place in this country in a way I never thought I would have to again. I wonder as someone, for you and your Jewish heritage, whether you feel similarly at all, or whether the fact that you're in London kind of insulates you from from that. I now no longer live in London. I live in in a lot less multicultural area, so perhaps I feel it more. And Do you experience racism? I, I, I experience a feeling of otherness that I didn't, I didn't feel so much when I was living in London.
0: Because I am white and because I speak with a public school accent and because I suppose my surname is sort of against me, if one want if we yeah, It's a it's dead giveaway. Yeah. I've managed to avoid feeling particularly defined by my, Ethnicity by my by my being Jewish. The only time when that changed was in the Corbyn years, where I suddenly began to understand that. The, I think they were dangerous times. I mean, again, I don't want to wade into an argument and have my Twitter feed, you know, flooded by people saying that there was and no similarities in into those one, periods. No. no, but it's. I mean, you know, you asked a question, and I think that it was. It was, it was an interesting and revealing time and, and, and one in which for the very first time I began to feel nervous uh, about being Jewish in the United Kingdom. And that led me to begin to think about about other ethnicities and to understand for the first time perhaps in my whole life what it must be like to wake up every morning and to have that, to have to go through that.
1: That's why it must be such a, a beautiful thing to be able to construct your own worlds. As you Well, do. that for me
0: is what my work is about. My books are not commenting on serious issues. If you read the Alex Ryder books, there is a sort of an underlying tendency towards the environment, towards not smoking, towards honesty, towards being good. But that I think every writer for young adults will inevitably tend towards. You cannot write, you know, 20, 25, 30 books for young adults and not eventually start sharing your view of the world i mean if you do your, your book's going to be very thin i think i just think that fiction and my books help to, to 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 just keep people entertained and to help them escape from some of the sort of the greater unpleasantness that the, that the world finds itself in
1: let's go on to your next object anthony which is a strange sculpture
0: it's difficult to this. describe this one to you, now without, um, <laughs> without showing it to you. And actually, I brought it down. I'm sitting here in front of me. In my office, I surround myself with objects that somehow inspire me, that somehow lead me to the books that I write. For example, there's a tarantula spider in a glass case that was given to me by my, by my brother for my birthday, and which inspired the um, sequence in an Alex Ryder book where a, uh, an assassin has a poisonous spider land on his shoulder the moment before he takes a shot. And the one that I'm thinking of, and the one which I'm actually holding at the moment, is by an artist called Ruth Barrett Danes. It's not valuable. It's just a a vase with two monsters sort of fighting each other over the lip of it. And if any of your listeners want to go on the internet, they'll probably find work by Ruth Barrett Danes. And this object gave me a nightmare one night because of these monsters fighting each other. And that nightmare led me to write a series of five books, which are called The Power of Five, um, Raven's Gate and The Evil Star, Nightrise, Necropolis and and Oblivion. Uh, They're my less well-known children's books, but in many ways they are my most... They're books that matter to me because they are. We talked a moment ago about sort of worldviews and politics and not getting into trouble. Um, those are my those are my worldview, and they were inspired by this little pot. And so, the, the, you're, obviously, you can't see what I'm looking at, but the point of this conversation is is that everything in my office is a, is a, like an impetus, Tintin, tin, um, and 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 the magic, you know, and, and the magic tricks and such. They make me think about stories. And in this case, it gave me a dream, which I then turned into uh, 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 five stories. And and that's why I chose it.
1: Do ideas bombard you, Anthony, or do you self-generate them?
0: Ideas just come. They just fall out of the sky. They just, everything I do, everybody I meet, everywhere I go, every experience I have, newspaper stories, uh, overheard conversations, dreams, everything is a story. And Most of the stories aren't worth writing and I discard them, uh, but some stay and won't go away. And those, the only way to get rid of them is to write them as books or plays or TV or whatever it's going to be. So, yes, I I have a, it's almost a, it's almost an impediment because actually it would be better to have just fewer ideas and to write less and to be slightly more relaxed about life. But that's just not the way I am. and, And so the ideas keep coming.
1: Uh, Alex Ryder, the TV adaptation, starring Vicky McClure and Otto Farrand, It's just gone up on Amazon Prime. Uh, how involved did you get with the writing of the scripts for
0: that? Well, it was a, it was it was difficult for me because actually I gave the writing uh, a writer called Guy Burt was uh, employed to do the writing, and I had to take uh, on the understanding that I couldn't interfere very much. But by and large, my 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 role, you know, EP, executive producer. If you watch an American film, there are 30 executive producers, it sometimes feels, they go on forever. (laughs) And what have they actually done besides have cocktails with the stars? But in my case, I, I was there in meetings, but I was always in a back seat. And to be fair to the production, which is, after all, my wife, Jill Green was in charge of the production company, uh, even though she didn't produce it herself. Um, so obviously they, they treated me with a certain degree of respect. But the wrench for me was to accept that this was not going to be the show that I would have written and trust that it would be okay. And of course there is, you know, it's easier to answer this question now that the show has aired and the response has been fantastic, particularly amongst the fans. So, so it, was, it was a wise gamble, but it was at the time quite scary.
1: We're going to go to a section of Moonflower Murders uh,
2: and let's listen to Susan. The book was Atticus Punt Takes the Case. It was the copy that Craig had given me in London. The time had finally come to confront not just the text but my memories of its creation. It felt strange. I was about to read one murder mystery while sitting inside another. I had put off reading it for reasons that I have already explained. I was perfectly well aware of the identity of the killer in the novel, and I remembered all the clues. I think it would be fair to say that a who-done-it is one of the very few forms of literature that rarely merit a second read. But by now, I had a good idea of what had happened at Branlow Hall on the 14th and 15th of June. I had met most of the characters involved. Alan Conway had come to the hotel. Perhaps he had even sat where I was sitting now, and he had seen something. They've got the wrong man. That was what he had said to James Taylor. He had come here in search of inspiration, but he had left with much more. And yet he hadn't gone to the police. He had hidden the answer in his book.
1: That was Moonflower Murders, written by my guest, Anthony Horowitz, and read by Leslie Manville and David Tennant, no less. It is available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Uh, were you involved in the casting of that, Anthony? A little bit,
0: in the sense that um, I think I might have recommended Leslie. I have to tell you now that if, the, you know, if one looks for silver linings in, the, in this terrible virus, um, one is that the very, very major talents were unexpectedly available. <laughs> uh, so to get David Tennant and Leslie uh, doing the two voices in the book is a fantastic coup. And, um, you know, funnily enough, I've worked, well, I've worked with David in the past. Um, uh, he appeared in an episode of Foyle's War years and years ago. And I've met Leslie as well and very much admire her. I saw her at the National Theatre before her play, which was called The Visit, uh, was closed down by the virus. And um, I have, and can't wait to hear her work as um, Susan.
1: Um- is it alan conway who features in the book of course uh, is he just a composite of different people or could you identify an Alan Conway that you have come across in your life? Not that I would expect you to name that person.
0: <laughs> For a nasty minute, I thought you going to say, is Alan Conway based on yourself? Um, <laughs> no, I, try I, to be as, I try to be as different from Alan Conway as I can. Yes, the answer sure. to your question is, is that he is loosely based on two or three characters, yes. Uh, I have met one or two writers who have that sort of... Self-aggrandizement and who can be quite spiky and difficult, and also i met, to be honest with you, I've met them in, in the television business as well, actors who have that same you know uh, thing of of being well known and loved, but who are still quite difficult as human beings. And I'm quite interested in that dichotomy of the public and the private face. But actually, Alan Conway is also largely based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and I think I may even mention this in the books that so I'm fascinated by the type of writer of whom Doyle is one, and Fleming, instead, is another, who slightly look down on their main character. Doyle thought of Sherlock Holmes as being really sort of a waste of his considerable talents, and he was much more in, interested in writing historical romances such as Michael Clarke and the White Company, books which I have read, but very few people have even heard of. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, I, I actually quite like Brigadier Gerald, who is his other major character, and he liked his, that character, but it is interesting that, that Doyle only brought um, Sherlock Holmes back to life in order to pay off his mortgage. Um,
1: let's go to your final object now, Anthony, which is a toy.
0: Oh, because there, Do we see a pattern developing here? And the objects I've chosen sort of oh, a, no. <laughs> a weird little sculpture, a um, a, a, a magic trick. and uh, Well, there was at least a bit of literature there with the book. I'm, I'm holding a toy in front of me now, and it's a, a block of wood with a piece of silver foil on it and a fish on the top. And when you turn the handle, a magnet inside the wooden block turns and the fish flips as if it's in its last moments of life. You can just hear it now yes. as I do it in front of the microphone. Yes. And it's 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 done by a um, uh, an, uh, an artist um, called Paul Spooner. Is he an artist? I just don't know. I mean, he's a craftsman, an artist, a toy maker. Uh, and I have met much of his work here And I have many, many others of these, and some are much more complicated than this one, which is tiny and and simple. Some are are really very complicated, and some work with electricity, and they're they're known as automata. Uh, And automata go back to the 19th century where there were very famous automata made. Um, There was a a famous automata uh, maker called Merlin, uh, or Merlin, as we would call it, which I think is interesting in itself, the idea of magic and science coming together. Um, And... I love these toys, and there are lots of them in my house. And I love them for two reasons, or many reasons. But the, the ones that I would mention are this, that I'm a big fan of things that are useless. I think that a lot of modern life is about only things that are practical and useful. It's one of the reasons why, for example, there is so little time for reading and reading out loud in a national curriculum. Because the national curriculum, I think teachers would agree, is largely centred on passing exams and getting your sciences and getting, you know, getting the sort of nuts and bolts of education down, which doesn't leave an awful lot of time nowadays for, for reading, which is considered to be an activity of pleasure. Uh, and, and I wish there was more of it. And I just think that as we move increasingly towards sort of a more pragmatic, more business related a more profit related society, we lose track of the simple pleasures the things that are made simply to make us smile and all these toys are just that but I, so that 's one of the reasons the other reason I would say is that I love the fact that these toys you can see how they work they reveal their secrets so you, in a way it 's a little bit like my writing that you know magpie murders moonflower murders are complicated um, uh, the, the mechanism is actually very very complicated, but the result the, the, the toy, if you like the 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 actual act, action, is very simple and very easy to enjoy. So that's that's reasons why I like these things, and they they distract me. I, I guess if I've got a sort of you know one one thing that my the, the you know the royalties I've earned have, have managed to allow me to do is to indulge in you know ten or twenty of these of these toys that just make me smile. They are a barrier between me and the real world.
1: It's you're such a warm, gregarious person. I've only just you know, speaking to you for an hour, but I've obviously looked through a lot of interviews that you've done. Um, And yet writing is a very solitary experience. So when you're writing, do you crave people or are you quite happy to be there on your own?
0: No, I don't crave people. I write perhaps 10 hours a day, pretty much every day. And so I'm on my own and Jill is at the office and my children now are sort of, you know, work and done. I'm not a hermit and I and I, I like people. Uh right. silence doesn't bother me and there's always music, there's always books, there's always nature. And and I can get by without without anyone except for my family.
1: It's amazing. Uh Anthony, thank you very much. Before we let you go, um, what's next? I mean, good grief, the your workload is
0: it's extraordinary I love it I love what I do and therefore you know if if I was doing something that was laborious and difficult and 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 made you sweat and hurt yourself then it might be more remarkable than it is I am very privileged because I sit behind a desk and generate all this work and and, and love every word of it what's next um well um I'm thinking up the plot of the next Hawthorne novel, the one, funny enough, although I know books four, five, and six, I don't know book three, irritatingly, so um, I've got to um, work that one out. Um, I'm working on a TV adaptation of uh, Magpie Murders, which um, we hope to start shooting next year, uh, if the virus allows. Um, I am uh, researching a, 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 another book, a spy thriller, um, which, I, which I hope to write sort of next year, if, if things happen, uh the right way um, and what else am I doing um, I've written a, t- a, t- a 10 part series for an American company Quibi and I'm, I'm doing work on that at the moment as well oh, and I'm also doing a Diamond Brothers story on the internet which I'm very happy about which is that um, by, by young people can, can get onto my website AnthonyHorowitz.com and they, the book is being written one chapter at a time actually in the manner of Dickens now I think about it um, and, um, uh, and every, every week or so I post a new chapter of that so, I mean, and I'm enjoying that very much just a
1: reminder before we go, please do tell all your friends about the Penguin podcast and please rate, comment and subscribe. Now You can also find us on your Alexa enabled device. Anthony Horovitz, thank you so much for hanging out Nihal, with us. Nihal, I've enjoyed though.
0: talking to you enormously. Thank you. Thank you. Heroes by Stephen Fry. A worthy companion to the best-selling mythos, Heroes introduces us to the dramatic and tragic lives of the legendary warriors and royalty of ancient Greece. A storyteller like no other, Stephen Fry leads us through the world of the gods. Acrisius, ruler of Argos, one of the most important of all Greek city-states, having produced no male heir to his kingdom, sought advice from the oracle at Delphi as to how and when he might expect one. The priestess's reply was disturbing. King Acrisius will have no sons, but his grandson will kill him. The audiobook edition of Heroes is available to download
2: now.